Regular listeners of this program are aware that I'm not a big fan of auteur theory, a critical lens that proposes that film be examined as the product of one defining author, usually the director, with the added assumption that the best films are the ones where the auteur's distinctive techniques, idiosyncrasies, and foibles are prominent. I feel this approach harkens back to a period where critics innately believed that collaborative works of art were inferior to efforts created by a singular entity. So, in order to make the new medium of film more academically respectable, arbitrarily assigning sole authorship to one person became popular amongst movie dorks. Aside from a handful of very special exceptions, movies are an inherently collaborative medium. Speaking personally, I feel it's usually ridiculous to single out one person as the principal author of something <laughs> that required hundreds of individuals to create. That being said, the history of Hollywood is littered with big personalities who left unique stamps on every project they were involved with, especially after auteur theory took off in the late 1950s and gave many directors an inflated sense of self-importance throughout the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> auteur theory isn't the way to examine film, but it is a way, and like any other lens, it can reveal things that other perspectives cannot. Uh, auteur theory becomes a bit easier to work with, at least for me, if one doesn't restrict it solely to directors. Critic Patrick H. Willems recently argued that Tom Cruise is the auteur of the Mission Impossible franchise. I believe that. He is, after all, the face of the series, has veto power over all storytelling decisions, and handpicks each installment's director based on where he wants the story to go. One could also plausibly argue that producer Kevin Feige is the auteur of the MCU. The directors certainly don't have final say on those movies. Hmm. Uh, screenwriter Charles Kaufman tends to have more of a presence in his projects than the people directing or performing in them. And that brings us to Val Luton, the co-writer and producer of Cat People. Placed in charge of RKO's low-budget horror unit in 1942, Luton was more or less given free reign to make anything he wanted, as long as it was less than 75 minutes long, had a budget of less than $150,000, and used a schlocky attention-grabbing title supplied to him by studio execs. Expected to create exploitation trash cinema, Luton instead had his team craft atmospheric, allegorical, and surprisingly thoughtful horror movies. Each one carried Luton's sense of care, attention to detail, and willingness to take its lowbrow genre trappings at sincere face value. And we will be talking about Cat People, his most famous project. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me on this one is Rachel. Hello. And uh, also my brother Sylvan. Hi, I am also here. <laughs> Cat People has been on my to-do list for a while, but last month Salem Horror Fest decided to do a screening at a local theater that was curated by, you know, Kay, the Salem Horror uh, person. <laughs> and I figured, well, now is as time as uh, as good a time as any to do it. And Rachel went along with it. You'd seen Cat People before. Yes. Weirdly enough, it was one of the movies that we watched and wrote about for my critical literary theory class. I was an English major. So this is not your first time thinking too much about cat people. No, yeah, but that's the thing is that I hadn't, like, thought of about it in years. I mostly remember that my overachiever is going to come out. It was the first paper that I ever failed writing in college, and then I had to fix it in the edits. <laughs> A deeply traumatic experience, I'm sure. But yes. a necessary one that we all must go through. Hey, exactly. <laughs> Speak for yourself, I never failed a paper. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, uh, and Sylvan. Uh, I invited Sylvan along more or less last minute because I was like, wait, this is a 1940s horror movie, and Sylvan went through a big old werewolf phase a few years back. I was like, this seems like exactly the sort of thing Sylvan would be into. It was. It was exactly the sort of thing Sylvan was into, especially since we put it through a queer lens with Sal- uh, Salem Horror Fest and Kay's intro. Cat People is not hard to put through a queer lens. I never, but yes, uh, I never got your... Did you like Cat People? Yes. Yes, I did. Okay. I was that, surprised you hadn't seen it. Oh, so even if a movie seems like it's exactly my thing, like the situation, mm-hmm. I'm still not likely to get around to watching it and instead comfort watch the same movies over and over and over again. I assume that's the neurodivergence. Because yeah, you went through valid. yeah, you went through all of the Universal Wolfman movies. And Not all of them. There's quite a few. I went through as many as I could easily get my hands on. <laughs> but yeah, you can watch She Wolf of London, which is a crappy version of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, before we go any further, plot recap. Uh, we open with the Central Park Zoo in New York City, where we see our main character, Serbian, scare quotes born fashion illustrator Irina Dubrovna, make sketches of a black panther. She catches the attention of marine engineer Oliver Reed. I forgot that was his job. Yep, he's like the most American guy ever. That's why there were all the little boat models. Oh yeah, there we go. It's like, uh, what were all those fashion dolls doing in the basement of the McAllister home in Home Alone? Oh right, the mom's a fashion designer. I mean, I was too busy laughing over the fact that his name was Oliver Reed. Like the actor. Uh, Also, there's that scene where they're at the museum and he's bonding intellectually with his co-worker because they're nerding out over boat architecture or boat design. I'm sure architecture is not the proper word for that. Mm. Anyways, he strikes up a conversation by negging her about littering and somehow gets inside her apartment for tea. She's very lonely. It's a nice apartment, can I just say? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, almost bigger than she can afford because it's easier to fit camera equipment inside or something. Mm-hmm. Now, Oliver is intrigued by the statue of a medieval warrior on horseback impaling a large cat with his sword, like in the middle of the coffee table. Uh, Irina informs Oliver that the figure is King John of Serbia and that the cat represents evil. According to legend, long ago, the Christian residents of her home village gradually turned to witchcraft and satanic worship after being enslaved by foreign invaders. When King John drove them out and saw that the villagers had become devil worshippers, he had them killed. However, the wisest and most wicked of the witches escaped into the mountains. Oliver is naturally dismissive of the legend, even though Irina very clearly takes it quite seriously. Oliver decides to insinuate himself further into her life by buying her a kitten, but upon meeting her, it hisses (laughs) because there's just something off about Irina. Can we talk about the fact that he just put that cat in a shoebox and just brought it with him? A lot of audience laughter over Oliver just, like, shoving it in the shoebox, and that's just fine. Look, that poor cat. I'm like, did he even poke holes in it? Yeah, there were holes in the top of the box. Okay, good. But yeah, It was a very adorable kitten, by Mm -hmm. the way. And putting a kitten oh, yes. in a cat carrier causes the freak out, let alone a shoebox. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, Irina suggests that they go to the pet shop to exchange the kitten for a bird, but when she goes in there, the animals go wild in her presence, and Irina becomes uneasy. 
Irina gradually reveals to Oliver that she believes that she is descended from the witches of her village and that she will transform into a panther whenever aroused to passion. Despite this, Oliver asks her to marry him and she agrees. Although she said that, you know, she spent her whole life trying not to fall in love with anyone because she's afraid of her cat transformations. During the dinner after the wedding at the Belgrade, a Serbian restaurant, a cat-like woman walks over and addresses Irina as my sister. That was Simone's voice dubbed in. Uh, Irina never consummates the marriage, fearful of the consequences if she should ever get horny in the presence of her husband. They don't even kiss. Oliver is patient with her, but eventually persuades her to start seeing a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Louis Judd. Possibly the worst man ever of his profession. Judd, yeah. Judd, tries to, <laughs> Judd tries to convince her that her fears stem from childhood trauma and are illusory. Meanwhile, Irina is unhappy to discover that Oliver has confided his marital woes in with his assistant, Alice Moore, who is very clearly in love with him. That's some am I the asshole shit right there. Reddit's am I the asshole is fun to read, but like everyone there is clearly painting the story in a way that favors them. How can you not? <laughs> when Irina chances to see Oliver and Alice seated together at a restaurant, she follows Alice home. Just as uh, Alice hears a menacing sound, a bus pulls up and she boards it. Menacing sound being rather pantherish. Soon after, a groundskeeper discovers several freshly killed sheep. Uh, the paw prints leading away turn into imprints of a woman's shoes. That was such a cool part. Hmm. Irina returns to her apartment looking disheveled and exhausted after this scene. She is shown shortly afterwards weeping in the bathtub. Irina dreams of Dr. Judd dressed up as King John speaking of the key and later steals the key to the panther's cage at Central Park. Uh, Irina, Oliver, and Alice visit the aforementioned uh, nautical museum, and Irina <laughs> is angered when the two virtually ignore her. That evening, when Alice decides to use the basement swimming pool of her apartment building, she is stalked by some kind of animal. Oh, that whole part was so good. Mm -hmm. When Alice screams for help, Irina appears, turning on the lights, and says that she is looking for Oliver. Alice later finds her bathrobe torn to shreds. After an appointment with Dr. Judd, Irina tells Oliver that she is no longer afraid, but Oliver informs her that it is now too late. He has realized that he has loved Alice all along and intends to divorce her. Oh, he had such an interesting monologue about the woes of being so privileged that he, he's never been through any hardships before and doesn't know how to handle this. Oh my god, I've, I've literally talked to people who have never had anything bad happen to them in their entire life, and it's like, I'm trying to explain this to you, but you just can't get it. He's got such a punchable face during that part. Oh yeah. Later on at work, Oliver and Alice are cornered by a snarling beast. Uh, they manage to escape the building, but not before noticing that Irina's perfume is wafting through the air. Alice calls Judd to warn him to stay away from Irina, but he hangs up when Irina arrives for her appointment with him. I see. Turns out he's had a thing for Irina all along and starts kissing her passionately, resulting in her transformation into a panther who attacks and murders him. Can we talk about that the panther transformation happens entirely off camera? Uh, yes, the film is very much going out of its way to insinuate monster transformations without depicting him. We'll get to that. Which is the wise choice in this time period, but also good for her. Yeah. Judd spends most of the film essentially being Professor Gaslight, and then he's like, um, I, I'm gonna use my authority over you to manipulate you into the bedroom. Oh no, you're a panther now. Ah! Very satisfying. Very satisfying. He had it coming. 
When Oliver and Alice arrive at Dr. Judd's office, uh, Irina slips away and flees to the zoo. There, she opens the panther's cage with the stolen key and is struck down by the escaping cat, which is accidentally run down and killed by a car. Next to the panther's cage, Oliver and Alice find a dead panther lying on the ground. The last remark in the film is Oliver saying, she never lied to us. Yeah, but she had a piece of the sword that the sword cane that what's his name had. Yeah, Doctor Judd's sword cane. Yeah, and that's what she's like hiding it with her jacket, and I think the panther hitting her was like the final blow. That was a nice bit of um, folklore inclusion too. A lot of werewolf and like transformation stories involve the beast getting struck or somehow like wounded by the humans, and then later on the human that is transformed back has the same injury and that's how they figure out that it's a werewolf. Mm-hmm. Val Luton was born to a Russian Jewish family that converted to Christianity but that did not stop them from gaining negative attention from the Tsar and his pogroms. Emigrating to Germany and then the United States when he was still a child, Luton's family settled in New York. Luton had a gay auntie in the theater scene, and his mother was a screenwriter, so he inherited her passion for the typewriter, ultimately becoming a novelist. His uh, 1932 pulp book, No Bed of Her Own, was adapted into the Clark Gable Carol Lombard vehicle, No Man of Her Own. He began working for MGM's publicity department, ultimately winding up in the unit of legendary producer David O. Selznick. Luton worked on the 1935 film version of A Tale of Two Cities, and despite thinking that it was unfilmable, he did uncredited punch-ups on Gone with the Wind. Luton was lured over to RKO's B-movie wing by RKO exec Charles Corner. Jealous of Universal's popular monster franchises, <laughs> uh, Kerner wanted to revamp RKO's horror output. While unwilling to allot budgets comparable to The Mummy or Bride of Frankenstein, RKO did fork over more cash than uh, PRC direct like The Mad Monster or The Ape Man. Uh, <laughs> Luton had worked with French director Jacques Tournier on the second unit crew for Tale of Two Cities and brought him along to RKO. KO. Screenwriter DeWitt Bodine met Luton while doing research for what would eventually become the 1943 film version of Jane Eyre. After getting assigned the title of Cat People, the trio began scouring horror literature for a source story. Ambrose Bierce's The Eyes of the Panther and Margaret Irwin's Monsieur Seeks a Wife were considered. The team was in the middle of buying the film rights for Algernon Blackwood's Ancient Sorceress when Luton decided to drop literary adaptation altogether. It dawned on Luton that setting the cat monster story in the present day and in an urban environment could make the fantastical elements seem more modern and relatable. He added that a love triangle as the central conflict and as a motivation for the transformations would ground things further. Uh, most accounts credit Tournier, Bodine, and Luton hammering out the script together, although Luton refused official acknowledgement. While he wrote every movie he produced, Luton would only accept screen credit on occasion, and even then only through one of the pseudonyms he employed during his pulp years. <laughs> it is generally accepted that the final draft of Cat People was Luton's. Bodine recalled visiting Luton late at night and finding him writing away no matter what hour it was. I mean, mood. <laughs> Very relatable. I will re reiterate that Cat People was forced upon Luton at Kerner's insistence. Kerner felt that vampires, werewolves, and reanimated corpses were played out, and that a cat monster would be a fresh take. We uh, love it! <laughs> Luton felt that a cat monster was a ridiculous premise, and informed Bodine that he wouldn't hold it against him if he wanted to back out. 
And uh, that brings us to the cast. Uh, first person I guess we should mention is Simone Simon as Irina Dubrovna. She was great in this. Very pretty and very charismatic. She was specifically sought out for this part by Luton. He was inspired by Kathleen Burke's casting in The Island of Lost Souls. Luton believed that hiring a menacing vamp as Irina would be a mistake. I agree. He wanted Simon because, according to Luton, she had the screen presence of someone soft, cuddly, and seemingly not at all dangerous, which would belie the menace underneath. She also has beautiful eyes. Yeah, and, like, you need someone with that, like, you know, magnetism that you get from early Hollywood leading ladies to sell the role because, like, men become obsessed with her very easily. And, you know, entitled douche bros not taking a no and all that is not unusual or anything, but it it does make make a lot of sense. Simon was one of France's earliest green celebrities. She's not actually Serbian, by the way. No. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have guessed. Damn. (laughs) Simon had a mixed reception once Hollywood snapped her up. Unlike many other foreign actors of the time, Simon only got a few weeks of English classes before she got shoved onto movie sets. Simon soon gained a reputation for being snooty, aloof, and temperamental on set, something that she often blamed on Americans being more boisterous and extroverted uh, when compared to her very French disposition. Hollywood also struggled to find suitable roles for Simon, although she did distinguish herself in The Devil and Daniel Webster, which came out a year before Cat People. Simon went back to France shortly after World War II ended and never looked back. She's a legend in French cinema. Over here, she's known as the actress from Cat People. (laughs) I mean, good for her. (laughs) So, like, you know, the the tension of the immigrant not having her uh, society and background respected. She had some some inspiration to draw from. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a great deal of that came from Luton's own personal backstory, in case that wasn't obvious, but yes... Hey, little column A, little column B. Well, no, they, they both needed to communicate that in different ways for this to work. Also, the director was an immigrant. Lots of immigrants in this movie, in case that isn't obvious in terms of the storytelling. <laughs> Kent Smith got cast as Oliver Reed because Luton saw him biking around the studio a lot one day and liked the cut of his jib. Figured, this guy should play Oliver. He's got that, I'm a 1940s all-American man. Yeah, it's it's not quite the same vibe as Sitcom Dad. Mm-hmm. Like, Sitcom Dad is a little more avuncular. Yeah, this guy fucks. <laughs> not well, but he does. Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Simon missed out on much. No. <laughs> he's so close to being a himbo, but he's not quite likable enough. But he does have that kind of confusion about him. Yeah, I can't relate to this woman I married at all. Maybe I... Maybe you rushed into it. Yeah. <laughs> and the, you know, totally unearned confidence in everything he does. Mm-hmm. Emotional affair with his co-worker. Uh, Luton wanted Jennifer Jones to play Alice Moore, but David O'Selsney cock-blocked him. He had plans for her. So he had to settle on a newcomer named Jane Randolph. This was one of her earliest parts, and she didn't really do too much after this. She's fine. I I liked her until I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) She's very good in the stalking scenes. That that, that whole scene, a lot of it, depended not only on the cinematography, but also on her facial acting and her body language. I I definitely like her and her performance. It's the character where I was like, yeah, she's great. Oh, no, she's horrible. (laughs) So her and Oliver were suited for each other. I think the bus scene is absolutely terrifying. Yeah, we will talk a bit more about the bus scene when we get to the shooting. But first, 
Tom Conway as Dr. Lewis Judd. Got that, you know, shitty transatlantic accent going on. And it's also a very 1940s Hollywood transatlantic accent. Yes. Because <laughs> he played his part fine, I hated him. Yeah, I think he, he did a great job. Perfectly cast, he had his smarmy little mustache, his cravat. Yeah, Conway. He made, made the protagonist seem very unsafe whenever he was around. Yep. Yeah, Conway became one of Luton's regulars. He uh, reprises his role as Dr. Lewis Judd in The Seventh Victim, because if we needed to expand upon any of the characters and cat people needed them to show up in subsequent films, it was definitely Dr. Judd. You needed them to know more about Dr. Judd's past. What? Oh, his past. I was going to say, we had a very satisfying kill. They didn't take that away from us, did they? <laughs> <laughs> That's acceptable. <laughs> Uh, the pool scene was shot at the Royal Palms Hotel, since scouts felt that the area was claustrophobic and would lend itself to shadowy mood lighting. I agree. Well done, scouts. Uh, RKO producer Lou Ostrow demanded that Tornier be fired three days into the shoot. Luton appealed to Kerner, who took a look at the rushes that Ostrow hated and decided, that, you know, they're fine. It's good enough. It's a B-movie. Why is he agonizing over this shit? <laughs> so yeah. I- <laughs> Simon frequently clashed with her co-stars and with Tornair, apparently halting production for a day by deliberately pouring coffee on one of her dresses out of spite. Randolph felt that Simon uh, resented her, and she was constantly uh, stepping on her lines and attempting to upstage her. Tornair got fed up with this and chewed Simon out in front of everyone in French one day, which apparently really pissed her off. Hello. RKO insisted that the crew shoot a live panther for the drafting room scene. Luton and Tornair wanted to imply Irina's transformations with Shadow and leave it up to the audience to decide for themselves if she actually became a cat monster or not. As such, they did everything they could to minimize the panther's presence in cat people, much to RKO's later annoyance. Put a pin in that. (laughs) Uh, Bodine claimed that the famous pool scene was inspired by a childhood incident where he almost drowned. Tornair said that the pool scene came about because he was once surprised by a pet cheetah while swimming in a friend's pool. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) Is there anything more to that story? Why was there a pet cheetah? I don't know, a centric Hollywood person who thought it was cool to have a cheetah. Yeah, that's like some Jack Hollywood. Johnson had one. <laughs> that's some Hollywood bullshit right there. There was a trend in the 1920s of people walking live panthers down the street. It didn't last very long. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly not an inherently bad idea that needs to be explained to people. <laughs> Simon believed that her acting in the pool scene was embarrassing. I thought she was fine. Yeah, she seemed distant and a little spaced out while she was talking to um, I mean, Randolph. And I think that, yeah, that, that was completely fine with the scene. But um, Simone's acting in Cat Peoples has been a sore point for many critics over the years, but we'll get back to that. Cab People came in at a final cost of 144000 which was 20000 over its proposed budget, but still within the upper limit of the parameters. Mark Robson was assigned to edit Cab People after the failure of the Magnificent Ambersons. Robson inter- interpreted this as a punishment. Uh, RKO got burned real bad with their working relationship with Orson Welles. They took a bath on both Citizen Kane and Ambersons, and part of the reason why they put more money into their B-movies is because, like, as Kay put it at the presentation, they were done with genius. Now they just want basic showmanship. <laughs> Robson's main contribution to Cat People was cutting the scene where Alice grows increasingly more anxious as she walks alone through the park at night. She recoils at a sudden strange noise that turns out to be a bus's air brakes. 
Robson claims that the loud brake noise he added was an accident, but he elected to keep it since he thought it would be a strong fake-out that would keep the audience on the edge of their seats. Well, I agree. This effect, nicknamed the Luton Bus, would be repeated in most of Luton's RKO horror output from here on out. Uh, it is a very early example of the jump scare in horror cinema. Some people claim it is the first jump scare, although if you're a horror movie nerd, you can probably think of three or four earlier ones off the top of your head. Jump scares, I think, can be really cheap in a horror movie, but when they're used well, they're used well. And I think this is definitely one of the examples of it. Enough that this scene is, it did make it onto Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. Yeah, even though at this point we've been jump scared to death, it did feel very novel. Mm-hmm. Roy Webb's score for Cat People was influenced directly by Simon. Luton caught her absent-mindedly humming to herself one day and quickly whisked her off to Webb to repeat the melody, and it became Irina's core motif. Aw, that's actually really cool. RKO execs hated Cat People, thinking that it was too subtle and deliberately paced to be a proper horror movie. They wondered aloud about why there weren't any monsters in this damn monster movie. <laughs> it's just subtle, guys. It's subtle. A test screening of Cat People was preceded by a Disney cartoon starring Figaro, which caused many in the crowd to sarcastically meow at the screen throughout the showing. According to Bodine, the audience did settle down and get into the movie eventually, though. That's good. I gotta say, if you want a horror movie with a lot of monsters in it, you do need a budget. Otherwise, you're gonna get artsy shit like this where they creatively try to work around it. Or you're gonna get something like The Ape Man. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cat People got eviscerated by critics. Its, it's, it's contemporary reviews are almost exclusively terrible. Critics lambasted it for being ponderous and awkwardly structured. They felt it was way too long, even though it is like under 75 minutes. Mm -hmm. The acting was also given a degree of scorn, particularly uh, Simon's struggles to enunciate fully in English. They also thought her accent was ridiculous in this movie. And even retrospective reviews kind of jump on that. I am not an expert on Serbian accents. I'm assuming that it's terrible, but I think in isolation it works. Yeah, I think so. If there were other more people trying to do the accent, then it would have been kind of goofy. Cat People was a success at the box office and ran in theaters for so long that more than a few critics saw the film again and then a few months later revised their opinions to be a little more positive. Yay! The movie's artful use of shadow and its focus on psychological underpinnings drew guarded praise from a few of these revisionist critics. I mean, it really is just beautifully shot. Kay referred to it as like a proto-film noir concept and yeah, the... I don't know. I, I thought it was beautifully done, all of the contrasting light and dark. Especially the stalking sequence in the pool. It definitely looks like a European movie. A bunch of French guys who looked at those German guys and he was like, yeah, they know how to compensate for a lack of budget. <laughs> Drench everything in shadow and act like it's psychologically impacting. <laughs> Cat People's box office earnings aren't fully known. This is a common trait for most movies made during this time. It is easy enough to find claims that it grossed $4 million, although some sources come to a much lower estimate. Either way, Cat People was massively profitable, even under the lower figures. RKO re-released it in 1952. Nice. The Curse of the Cat People followed in 1944. 
following Alice and Oliver's daughter, uh, Amy, going through a traumatic coming-of-age adventure. Simon returns as Irina's ghost, who helps Amy with her self-actualization. Curse of the Cat People was at least partially based on Luton's lonely, sometimes dangerous childhood, and uh, the film's climax, where Alice gets lost in the woods, is taken from one of his personal memories. He has occasionally cited it, or at least according to people who talked to him uh, years later, as the film that meant the most to him. It is a very weird movie that has little to do with its predecessor's tone and themes, despite retaining much of the original's cast. Uh, Luton unsuccessfully tried to have the title changed to Amy and Her Friend. And it's a Christmas movie. Yes, it's one of those sort of Christmas movies like The Shop Around the Corner or Lethal Weapon. Die Hard. Die Hard's one of those. I'm excited to see this one. <laughs> yeah, I did. I haven't seen Curse of the Cat People. It sounds good, though. I really like Curse of the Cat People. I, I think I like it more than the first Cat People. I'm partially doing this so I can do Curse of the Cat People later. Smart. 1943's The Seventh Victim was directed by Robson, produced by Luton, and co-written by Bodine. Uh, as I already mentioned, Tom Conway returns as Dr. Judd and deals with <laughs> another woman haunted by fears that may or may not be supernatural. Many, including Conway, consider The Seventh Victim uh, to be an unofficial Cat People sequel. I'll have to check it out. Decades later, Taxi Driver screenwriter Paul Schrader directed a Cat People remake in 1982. Aside from a nod to the pool scene, it doesn't have much in common with its forebear, focusing upon a male cat monster instead of a female one. It's a lot hornier and has an ambivalent reputation critically. The most enduring element is probably the score by Giorgio Moroder and David Bowie. The theme song was re-recorded by Bowie on his uh, album Let's Dance. That is probably uh, what most people know it from. So yeah, if, if I introduced cat people in the beginning and you were thinking about putting out fire with gasoline, indirectly, yes. I mean, also, Tarantino uses that song memorably in Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, he uses the version from the 1982 Cat People movie. Okay. Cry of the Werewolf in 1944 was Columbia's attempt to respond to the success of both Cat People and Universal's The Wolfman. Cat People was originally issued to compete against The Wolfman and almost made as much money as it. Yay, uh, Cat! Jungle Woman, The Soul of the Monster, The Woman Who Came Back, She-Wolf of London, The Catman of Paris, Cat Creeps, <laughs> uh, Cult of the Cobra, Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, The Creeper, and The She-Creature all attempted to emulate cat people and or the wolfman. How'd they do? Featuring cursed transformations, a shadowy visual style, or both. Some of them did better than others. Director Curtis Harrington made two direct tribute films to Luton's work. Uh, 1961's Night Tide is essentially cat people with a mermaid instead of a cat monster. Ooh. 1973's The Cat Creature was a more overt take on it. Harrington even cast Kent Smith in it. <laughs> the comic's character Pantha was introduced as a supporting feature in Vampirella magazine. This is another riff on cat people. Pantha is a sex worker who could shapeshift into a panther. Uh, she was likely derived from cat people, although I don't know that, that for sure. However, unlike Irina, the motivation for Pantha's transformations was not romantic jealousy, but defense against sexual assault. Most of Pantha's victims were creepy men who felt entitled to her body, which gave the series a quasi-feminist revenge fantasy element. 
I'm gonna have to yeah, check that out. That. Yeah, I'm gonna check that out. You sold me on that. I mean, I don't want to overstate the empowerment subtext here. This is 1970s Vampirella, a series intended primarily for 15-year-old boys who weren't brave enough to sneak into local screenings of Halloween or The Hills Have Eyes. I it's... will always be okay with stories about supernatural monsters murdering creepy men. <laughs> exactly. It is male gazy as hell and is unsophisticated by grindhouse standards. That's okay. Still, it is an interesting time capsule if you want to track down Panther. I mean, sometimes things are fair for their day and maybe even better than their day. I mean, you know I like things like Tales from the Crypt and Twilight, so just assholes getting what they deserve by monsters. Yes. You might be able to get into Pantha, although her, her 90s and 2000s reboots make her more of like a cursed Egyptian princess. Like in the 90s, they made Vampirella the descendant of Lilith instead of a space alien from the planet Draculon because they wanted to make Vampirella less silly. <laughs> but Draculon is such a good name. I know, I love that she is an alien from the planet Draculon. <laughs> Anyways, that brings us to themes. Yay! All right, first thing I wrote down, getting this out of the way real fast, cat people as a metaphor for queer identity. Yeah. As I already mentioned, Rachel, Sylvan, and I attended a screening of cat people at Cinema Salem, and the theater's curator, Kay, chose this film because it was significant to her personally as she decided to come out as a trans woman. To her, a lot of Irina's struggles spoke to her own sense of depression, anxiety, and dysphoria. I mean, I don't want to paraphrase too much because I don't have her lived experience and this is her story and not mine. But in her introduction, Kay did express that she didn't interpret Irina's transformations into a panther as Irina becoming her true self. This is often a cheat code for, like, trans masking in pop culture and a lot of trans people are real fucking sick of it. To Kay, Irina's feline manifestation was symbolic of her suicidal ideation. The film does paint it explicitly in the stated text as a desire for death. It is not uncommon to look at Cat People as a lesbian film on top of that. Irina's relationship with to Oliver is easy to read as aromantic, and her fixation upon Alice comes with a noticeable degree of intensity. Luton was partially raised by a queer auntie, as, as, as I mentioned, and Bodine, uh, the screenwriter, was a gay man himself. So it's far from impossible for such an identity to color this movie's subtext. Years after its release, Bodine warmly recalled receiving gratitude from lesbians for representing their struggles as much as a Hayes Code-era Hollywood film could possibly do. While I do respect this perspective myself, and I do think that one can make an honest case for it, I wouldn't say that that's my read on cat people, although I wouldn't be surprised if that is Sylvan or Rachel's read on cat people. Uh, I definitely mostly felt uh, the ace feelings from it more so than, I mean, I, I just, I think it's possible for a variety of queer people to bond with this particular monster, and that's pretty typical with queer people being drawn to horror movies, and especially monster horror movies. You know, we're society's outsiders and outcasts. I mean, I didn't really look at it that way. I mean, I, I definitely think that it's probably the most valid interpretation for me watching it. I was just enjoying the fact that I love stories of women transforming into quote-unquote monsters or something else. Or just sort of like that reckoning with a part of your life. And I think that perhaps at this one... Irina really doesn't try to live with what's wrong or what's causing her trouble. She's trying to maybe avoid it. You know, maybe that 
that's just my interpretation of it but I really do love you know other stories and movies about women dealing with that element of transformation in their lives on during the Titan episode I mentioned Raw it's about a teenage girl discovering that her family all women are family are cannibals also Teeth the Vagina Dentata movie yeah it's corny and violent and campy as fuck but at least you know sometimes where there's heart to it and some two books that I would want to mention, The Vegetarian by Han Kang. It's about a woman who is slowly trying to turn herself into a tree and all of the horror that goes with it. And also um, Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder, which is about a woman who's kind of maybe suffering from just like depression and dissatisfaction with her life. She thinks that she is slowly starting to turn into a dog. And the problem is that she likes being able to turn into the dog. Alright, I mean, my read on cat people is that Irina is not aromantic or disinterested in her husband. I think she's horny as fuck and has been programmed to be ashamed of that. Which leads me to my point, uh, my next point, cat people is a metaphor for patriarchy and female oppression. Woo! Like, I know you have, you know, trad cats in there, but I was like, that's a very Catholic thought for you, right? You know... <laughs> Uh, uh, before we go on, though, I, I did not detect really any um, interest from her character actually in Oliver. Like, that was a part of the movie that kind of, like, took me out. I thought the vibe that I got was maybe that it was something that she felt like she ought to be trying to do. Ooh, and yes. that's where the war was coming from. But whenever she's around him, like uh, Kay had said, she, she has much more passion and natural behavior and whatever when she's in the society of women um so <laughs> I, I also would personally read her um as as asexual maybe not aromantic but she doesn't want to be touched by him and it's not just because she thinks it's going to turn her into a monster she definitely don't want to touch judd i don't think there's a realistic reading on that <laughs> and also, I, I also wonder when i this is my view on it when i was watching it in college 10 years ago was that her interaction and quote-unquote jealousy towards Alice comes from, like, Irina's belief that she is not being a woman the right way and Alice is doing womanhood the correct quote-unquote way. To me, cat people reminded me of purity, modesty, and trad wife subcultures in the modern evangelical movement. Oh, yeah. These circles are rife with Christian influencers who preach that a woman's worth is measured in how untouched and virginal they are, adding that premarital sex will permanently degrade a woman's value and make them unfit for the love of a good husband or of Jesus himself. <laughs> uh, of course, once a woman does get married, she's now expected to be a sexual dynamo for the man who claimed her. These circles presume that a wife's divinely mandated duty is to pleasure her husband and that her failure to do so is a dereliction of duty. One has to instantly go from Virgin Mary to porn star the moment that the I do's are exchanged. This is fucked up in a whole bunch of ways, but I want to focus here on the psychological impacts of such expectations. It's not easy for many evangelical women to weather this transition. They're told for their whole lives up to that point that until the night they get married, their sexual desires are a temptation to sin and that engaging in any kind of sexual activity will ruin them in the mind of God. This ingrained concept will not vanish overnight just because a wedding ceremony took place. Uh, for one thing, many evangelicals grew up in an environment that did not have frank, honest, and educated instruction about sexuality, safer sex, and consent. This leads many a young Christian couple borrowing stuff they saw on Pornhub with disastrous results. 
However, this can also cause physical issues. Uh, vaginismus is incredibly common amongst the evangelical women for reasons that I don't think I need to uh, expand upon. I think, you know, it's pretty obvious why. And as I said, my read on cat people is that Irina is incredibly attracted to other people, but she's too sexually repressed to act on it due to the superstitions of her background. In my eyes, Irina's transformations occur because of romantic jealousy and as a defense mechanism for internalized trauma. Speaking of which, something that happened a couple of weeks ago. Recently, conservative ideologue uh, Steven Crowder had a messy public divorce. The most visible event connected to this news was a leaked video where Crowder taunts, berates, and ridicules his very pregnant wife for her desire to use the car to run errands when Crowder wanted to use it to go to the gym. A common remark made about this video was confusion over Crowder only having one car since, you know, he's a millionaire uh, conservative <laughs> influencer. The more savvy commentators noted that this sort of thing is common in abusive relationships. Having one car means that Steven Crowder can more easily control when his wife can leave the house on her own. Abusers tend to exercise such levels of control over who their partner can talk to, what they're allowed to wear, and so on and so forth. Crowder encouraged this interpretation when, while going through his especially ugly divorce proceedings, started railing against the concept of no-fault divorce, which, if you're not familiar, is something that American conservatives have been denouncing for a while now. Basically, no-fault divorce is an agreement to end a marriage without the need to demonstrate abuse, infidelity, or any other, other kind of wrongdoing by either party. Abuse and infidelity are tough to legally prove even when the judge has no biases. So uh, instituting no-fault divorce was good news for women trapped in shitty, loveless marriages. Uh, it gave them power to leave. It's pretty much the only good thing Ronald Reagan ever did. <laughs> yeah, I think I mentioned this before in the Pleasantville episode, is that when no-fault divorces went through, the murder rate for men went down. Because, well, if a woman really, really, really does not want to be with her husband anymore, and she can't leave, and she can't get a divorce... You know, she might as well be grinding up something special into his coffee. Yeah, women's suicide rates also went down. Yep. Crowder and his ilk, however, hate the idea of women leaving marriages without the husband's permission. They cite cherry-picked statistics about rising divorce rates and the effect that divorce has on kids, but I suspect the real motivation is that they want more control over their women. Uh, besides, yep. <laughs> divorce rates have actually leveled off in the wake of no-fault divorce. There was a spike immediately afterwards, but or around the 90s or so. Now, also, I think that raising a child in a shitty, loveless, and possibly abusive marriage is worse than splitting up and sharing custody. Mm-hmm. Irina lives in a world where owning a uterus makes her a second-class citizen. Her ability to find gainful employment is limited, her personhood is set to higher standards, and there's even a plot point highlighting that Irina can be committed to a mental institution on all of her say-so without her input. What's interesting, though, is that, like, you know, we know that because of the historical context and all that, but in the, the movie's world, she's doing fine when all of her elbows is way into her life. She's got a beautiful place that doesn't he move in with her. Yeah. And she's got a profitable, high, glamorous career. Mm-hmm. And he probably moved into her place because they couldn't afford another set, but yeah, still, that plot point stands. Mm-hmm. Oliver decides to divorce Irina because if he did commit her to a mental institution, he'd be legally responsible for Irina's care and therefore would be unable to marry Alice. Wonderful guy. <laughs> Women are still socially and legally oppressed by patriarchy today, but strides have been made, like in the whole mental institution thing. I think that went away, like, what, the 70s? 
within I... living memory. Mm -hmm. uh, however, this progress has been recent, and certain events have demonstrated its vulnerability. People like Crowder would like to send us back to 1942 or even further if we let them. Right, and the last thing I wrote down was cat people as a metaphor for the immigrant experience. I was born in the country I live in, so I have the least to say about this point. You know, lived experience and all that, as I brought up before. But I do think this point is integral to the subtext of cat people, and I want to at least touch upon it here. Some... Yeah, I was going to say, we're, we're not a great crowd to try to address this one. <laughs> yeah, but we're going to bring it up anyway, because it'd be a disservice not to, I think. Also, I mean, something that I keep reading that has stuck with me is that on civil rights discussions, there is a contingent of white people out there that will not listen to black people, but will listen to an other white person. So I was thinking, like, if I can serve a role, I can serve at least that role. Oh, no, no, happily, I, I agree. I just, I, I have very little to say other than I think some of the themes are pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. Some years ago, I read an article about an American living in Australia that really stuck with me. Uh, the writer emphasized that despite a shared language and many cultural parallels, living in Australia presented still many elements, both big and small, that contributed to a feeling of isolation and otherness. Everything from road signs to the common electoral talking points were a part of this. This led to the writer to embrace lots of little Americanisms that he encountered along the way. Uh, it gave him a sense of belonging. He also glommed onto any other American immigrant he encountered, even if they clearly had nothing else in common besides the country they came from. <laughs> to me, this essay articulated a lot of what it must be like for someone who pulled up their roots and resettled in another nation. Even in the best case scenario, there must be a ton of problems. Uh, what must be compounded uh, is situations where uh, the move erects a language barrier or makes you an ethnic or religious minority. After that, it's small wonder to me that all the Greek people in my city live in the same pie blocks, all of which surround their Orthodox Church. I mean, hell, I encounter a lot of shitheads who think that the Orthodox Church is a mosque because of its architecture, and have decided that that's a serious problem. They don't seem to notice that there are crucifixes plastered all over it. Yeah, but it's like a Greek crucifix, so it's not the same. Yeah. Still not Muslim, though. Yeah. <laughs> I think there was some petty vandalism during the height of the War on Terror, so, you know, mm -hmm. people just really, really suck. Mm -hmm. uh, anyways, as I've mentioned already a few times, Luton was an immigrant fleeing a uh, really bad ethnic cleansing situation, and he infused many of his RKO horror films with his own experiences, and it is not hard to see some of Luton's biography in the fictional character of Irina. Curse of the Cat People is even more indicative as this, as Luton describes his childhood frequently as uh, lonely and friendless. Mm, poor Although, kid. in that case, he's not so much the ghost of Irina as the, the little girl. Alright, and uh, that is everything that I have written down about cat people. Is there anything that either of you would like to say about cat people before we close things out? Men suck. <laughs> Turn into panthers and eat them. Mm-hmm, yeah, I, I agree. This is not an official endorsement. If you uh, turn into a panther and eat a man, uh, we are not liable. <laughs> Thanks for listening to everybody. Good night. Meow.